Section 3.10 Domestication is Dangerous You ever plow a field, Summer? To plant the quinoa or sorghum or whatever the hell it is you eat? You kill everything on the ground and under it. You kill every snake, every frog, every mouse, mole, vole, worm, quail, you kill them all. So I guess the only real question is, how cute does an animal have to be before you care if it dies to feed you? John Dutton, Yellowstone Section 3.10.1 Disclaimer number 1 This subject hits close to home. This section lays the conceptual bedrock for understanding complex social behavior in pack animals, how they establish dominance hierarchies, settle intraspecies disputes, establish control authority over limited resources, and achieve consensus on the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of property. A few disclaimers before entering a discussion about animal pack behavior dominance hierarchies and the strategic implications of different pecking order heuristics. Sapiens are pack animals, and like many other packs, the most brutal and painful struggles between sapiens are centered around the establishment of pecking order. The following chapter has a more thorough discussion about the power projection tactics that sapiens use to establish pecking order, but it's helpful to acknowledge the sensitivities in this section up front so we understand how emotionally charged this topic can be. Our emotions and our ideologies will most likely affect how we react to conversations about pecking order strategies. In the author's experience doing research for this grounded theory, the topic of pecking order often made people feel uncomfortable or upset, likely because of how closely these concepts are linked to our own personal experiences. This part of the conversation simply hits close to home. For the sake of formulating a cohesive and conceptually insightful argument, about the complex emergent behavior of new power projection technologies, the reader is asked to indulge the author temporarily and to stay cognizant of the broader context of what they're reading. This is a thesis about Bitcoin, a technology that strikes directly at the heart of topics like power projection and resource control. Pecking order is just another name for a resource control protocol and it will be useful to develop a conceptually dense understanding of naturally occurring resource control protocols before entering a discussion about Bitcoin. What follows does not reflect the author's personal ideology about what resource control protocols should or shouldn't be used within human organizations. This is a logical discussion about mutually observable behavior in nature designed to help the reader draw out insights that help us better understand the emergent behavior of Bitcoin. What follows is uncomfortable to talk about, but critically important to understand. Section 3.10.2 Disclaimer number 2 Don't forget about survivorship bias. Survivorship bias is a logical error which causes people to be susceptible to making incorrect conclusions because they discount information they can't see because it didn't survive some selection process. 
Survivorship bias can affect discussion about pecking order heuristics by causing people to discount heuristics they can't see merely because it didn't survive the natural selection process. On the flip side, survivorship bias can also make people prone to discounting information they can see because they lose sight of the fact that the reason why they see what they see is because what they see is what survives. Survivorship bias is why the author has reminded the reader multiple times that what we see in nature today is incontrovertibly proven to survive nature. This is a phenomenon we can use to our advantage when it comes to gaining insights about different heuristics related to survival. If you want to know what pecking order heuristics are best for survival, simply observe nature. Nature has spent the past 4 billion years separating the wheat from the chaff and has already figured out the difference between heuristics that survive and heuristics that don't. This is something to keep at the forefront of our minds throughout the remainder of this thesis. Survivorship bias is important to understand when talking about pecking order heuristics employed by different pack animals. There is a wide range of different pecking order heuristics available to wild animals. For example, finders keepers, or first come, first served, are popular pecking order heuristics used by sapiens, hence why sapiens stand in lines so often a uniquely human behavior. Family first, oldest first, and youngest first are other popular pecking order heuristics. For pecking order heuristics which don't involve high levels of intelligence, intentionality, or theory of mind, it's very likely that over the past several hundred million years, animal packs of all shapes and sizes operating in all types of environments, have experimented with practically all of them. There is an extremely low probability that we can come up with a non-abstract pecking order heuristic, which hasn't been tried many times before over the past several hundred million years by innumerable animal packs whose survivorship depended on finding the most strategically optimal pecking order heuristic. Therefore, if we have a good idea for a pecking order heuristic that we don't see in nature, it's most likely not because that heuristic hasn't been tried. It's more likely because that heuristic is demonstrably incapable of surviving. Therefore, we don't see it in the wild. Section 3.10.3 Disclaimer number 3 Remember that nature is a sociopath. Look at the eyes on that jaguar. Nature has created, in those kinds of eyes, the perfect vision of terror. If you looked into those eyes, there's no forgiveness, there's no emotions, there's just ferocity and aggression and death. Joe Rogan Appreciating nature requires recognizing up front that most organisms are sociopaths. Nature has no apparent capacity to see, understand, or care about sapient theology, philosophy, or ideology. Moral good 
is a highly subjective and abstract construct which exists in an ontologically different category than the study of nature. This is further explained in the following chapter. Therefore, to better understand nature, it's useful to ignore human belief systems about right and wrong, fair or unfair, moral or immoral. These topics are almost irrelevant to the subject of natural selection and survival. Things which sapiens consider to be theologically, philosophically, or ideologically repugnant and reprehensible are often routine in nature. For example, suicide, murder, and cannibalism are so common in nature that they're often considered to be unremarkable behavior. Aging, for example, is an evolved form of suicide. Cells appear to have learned the habit of deliberately destroying themselves after a select duration of time as a tactic of evolution. Why would nature do something so inefficient and wasteful? Because the world is filled with predators and entropy, which means the environment is constantly changing. Organisms with long lives can't change their genetic features as quickly as organisms with short lives, and are therefore less adaptable to their environment, thus less likely to survive. Aging is a way for organisms to counteract this strategic problem. It is a highly efficient way to get a species to become more adaptable by forcing them to cycle through more evolutionary genetic features faster and test them faster in a live production environment. Shorter lifespans mean shorter mean time to deploy new genetic features that will help the species discover what it needs to prosper. The lifespans we see in different species today represent the optimal mean time to deployment speed of new genetic features for that given species. For sapiens, it's around 70 years. Life also has no problem killing itself with genetic malfunctions caused by its evolutionary prototyping strategy. Nature doesn't have a pre-production environment or a test net to work out its bugs. It deploys new features directly into a live production environment and simply accepts the consequences. An organism with a crippling genetic mutation is a prototype for the future version of that species that clearly doesn't function properly in an operational environment. Combined with aging, these malfunctions enable life to fail fast, fail often, and fail forward. The downside of this process is crippling genetic malfunctions at the individual organism level. The upside is the long-term survival of the species as the species remains adaptable to the changing environment. This process is how life gets to endothermy in time to build a suite of self-heating organisms which can survive a meteoric winter. As we have already established, killing is routine in nature for many of these same reasons. Life appears to take advantage of predation as an external motivator to accelerate the pace of innovation, weed out the weak and unadaptable, and re-vector resources to the more qualified survivors. 
We tend to want to overlook these uncomfortable parts of nature. We don't upvote these moments to the top of our social media feeds. Instead, at the top of our social media feeds, we get cute, adorable moments. We watch documentaries with carefully selected depictions of nature designed to thrill or inspire us. The epic music plays in the background, and the distinguished voice of an English accent makes an insightful remark. From our high tower of prosperity, this false depiction of nature becomes a generation's primary source of information about the real world, and it creates a beauty complex. We only see a carefully edited and thematically airbrushed version of nature. A corporately censored version designed to keep our attention. Missing from the top of our social media feeds is the scene where the mother squirrel eats her own babies alive to make it through January. Disney skipped over the part where Mufasa murdered every cub in the pride and then raped their mothers after killing the previous lion. That part. Doesn't fit the inspiring storyline they're trying to feed to their audience, so they skip over that part and start with the birth of Simba. Then somehow, we're just supposed to accept the fact that the animals which have been hunted by lions their entire life are inclined to celebrate the birth of yet another lion. The truth is that nature is not nearly as pleasant as what we see on our TV screens. Survival is an ugly business. It always has been, and it probably always will be. This ugly part of nature is less entertaining or inspiring to us, so we don't see it as often. The unfortunate side effect of this behavior at scale is that it distorts our perception of reality and inhibits us from understanding primordial economic dynamics, the survivor's dilemma. And the existential importance of physical power projection, for the sake of gaining deeper insight into the potential socio-technical impact of new technologies like Bitcoin, the reader is invited to recalibrate their understanding of nature. This means allowing ourselves to feel uncomfortable for a short period of time, so that we can better understand the dynamics of physical power projection. And how it relates to security and survivorship. There's a very clear, but ideologically repugnant, reason why lions kill their own cubs. Nature is giving us a lesson about survival, and it could be beneficial for us to pay attention if we want to survive against our predators too. Section three point ten point four. Correlation doesn't imply causation, but randomized A/B experimentation does. It is possible to prove that changing an animal pack's pecking order strategy—how they choose who to feed and breed—to reward different behavior than strength and aggression is systematically hazardous. However, that would require the design of a series of very large, very long. And probably unethical experiments. Fortunately, we don't need to perform these experiments because we have already done them on other animals for tens of thousands of years. The domestication of animals is incontrovertible proof 
that changing an animal pack's pecking order strategy to reward different behavior than strength and aggression is systematically hazardous to them. Discovering the root causes of social phenomena is difficult. It requires rigorous measurement and design of randomized experiments to control observable and unobservable factors while simultaneously isolating the relationships we want to examine. Randomized experimentation is critical for ensuring that observable and unobservable factors outside of the relationships we want to examine don't account for the differences in emergent behavior. With enough randomized experimentation data, it is possible to analyze the true causal effect of changing specific variables between a treatment and control group. In other words, it's possible to determine with high confidence that factor Y causes effect Z, rather than merely correlates to it. With the ability to gain causal inference via randomized experimentation in mind, consider animal dominance hierarchies and what effect pecking order has on an animal pack's security and prosperity. If one were to ask the question, how would a different pecking order heuristic where pack animals don't reward their most physically powerful and aggressive members with feeding and breeding rights change an animal pack's capacity to survive and prosper in the wild? One would have to find a way to generate enough randomized experimentation data to causally infer a relationship between these two variables. It is simply not possible to determine causal relationships between a species' pecking order strategy and capacity for survival without randomized experiments. If scientists wanted to investigate whether making a group of animals less inclined to impose severe physical costs on neighboring animals has a direct impact on their safety, security, and survival, they would have to run randomized experiments on dozens of different pack animal species where they control for the same variables each time. They would need to find a way to interfere with an animal population's pecking order instincts to prevent them from feeding and breeding their most physically powerful and aggressive members. Then, they would need to measure changes in emergent behavior by comparing each population to a control group of animals which didn't have their pecking order altered. This experiment would have both practical and ethical challenges. Scientists who want to examine how interfering with an animal's natural instincts impacts their safety would have to design randomized experiments that would endanger large populations of animals. They would have to change an animal pack's natural inclination to feed and breed their powerful and aggressive members against their will. They would have to force them to breed in ways they wouldn't naturally choose to breed, and place them in hazardous environments surrounded by predators, and then measure how well they survive. Scientists would have to repeat these experiments enough times with enough animal species across multiple environments and time periods to create a sufficiently randomized dataset from which they can causally infer that changing an animal pack's pecking order 
so that they're less physically powerful and aggressive does indeed cause them to be less secure against predators, thus less likely to survive. Scientific rigor would make it necessary to send large populations of animal species to their demise to generate enough data to causally infer this sort of relationship. In these types of situations where experimentation is not feasible due to practical or ethical concerns, scientists can take an alternative approach. They can look for serendipitous sources of random variation in existing data sets. There are ways to analyze data ex post facto that statistically mimic randomized experimentation well enough to infer causal relationships between different variables with sufficient confidence. For example, propensity score matching, instrumental variable analysis. All one needs to do is find the right dataset on which to perform this type of analysis. In other words, a scientist who wants to look for a causally inferable relationship between variables like systemic security and physical aggression wouldn't have to design unethical experiments which endanger animals. They could search for sufficiently randomized datasets which already exist and study those instead. Fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on how you think about it, there is already a plethora of serendipitous sources of randomized experimentation on large populations of animals across many different regions and time frames from which it's possible to causally infer a relationship between an animal population's capacity and inclination to be physically aggressive and their capacity to survive. Humans have already adopted the habit of interfering with the pecking order of pack animals to prevent them from feeding and breeding with their most physically powerful and aggressive members, and then placing them in hazardous environments where they are highly vulnerable to predation. Humans have been slaughtering dozens of different types of animal species across diverse environments for more than 10,000 years. We slaughter and devour billions of these animals. These experiments have become so ubiquitous and routine that most people don't even notice them anymore. From these experiments, sapiens have already created a dataset from which it's trivial to causally infer a relationship between security and lack of physical aggression. Over the course of tens of thousands of years, we have created many A-B testing environments which demonstrate quite clearly what happens to the safety, security, and survival of animals when they become less inclined to impose severe physical costs on their neighbors. Section 3.10.5 An Honest Description of the Systemic and Sociotechnical Implications of Domestication The difference between a Siberian wolf and a dachshund is the difference between pecking order heuristics. Different feeding and breeding heuristics result in clear differences between each animal's capacity and inclination to project physical power and impose severe physical costs on neighbors. 
One pecking order strategy produces something optimized for independence and survival in the wild, the wolf. The other produces something optimized to serve its master, the dog. This example alone sums up one why pecking order matters, and two why it's existentially imperative for the freedom and prosperity of animals not to stop feeding and breeding the strongest, most intelligent, and most aggressive members of their pack. Considering how the word "weaner" is slang for weak and ineffectual. The term "weaner dog" is highly appropriate. Dogs and dachshunds, especially, are weak and ineffectual wolves, as sapiens have shown multiple times across thousands of years of randomized experimentation in multiple different environments with at least forty different species of animals in multiple different classes—mammals, birds, and even fishes. Slight adjustments to the way animal packs feed and breed, the strongest and most physically aggressive members of their pack lead to substantial differences in their ability to keep themselves secure against predators. The domestication of animals offers a large dataset with conclusive evidence to show that there is a direct, causally inferable relationship. Between an animal's capacity and inclination to be physically aggressive, and their capacity to survive, prosper, and live freely, the less an animal is inclined to impose severe physical costs on their neighbors, the easier they are to be systematically exploited and led straight to slaughter. Changing pecking order heuristics to something other than feed and breed the most physically powerful and aggressive members of the pack has had an incontrovertible impact on the safety, security, and survival of dozens of animal species. This implies that pecking order strategies—how animals instinctively choose to establish control, authority over their resources. Fundamentally represents a power projection tactic, which directly affects their capacity for survival. The survivor's dilemma, in other words, the strategic imperative to increase the cost of attack, therefore applies to pecking order heuristics just the same as it applies to other power projection tactics. The better pecking order heuristics are the ones which maximize an animal pack's ability. To decrease BCRA by imposing severe, physically prohibitive costs on attackers. In other words, animal packs don't reward their most powerful and aggressive members with feeding and breeding rights because it's the right thing to do. They do it because all the animals that didn't do it didn't survive. Establishing the right pecking order strategy represents an existential imperative for pack animals. It is no less vital for the survival of a pack of hyenas to establish an advantageous pecking order over a fresh kill than it is for a starving family of humans to ration their bread. Choosing who to feed and breed first is one of the most critical decisions a pack of animals can make, and there is a lot to be learned from observing how nature's top surviving animal packs make this decision. Ironically, 
The animals we most commonly observe in nature today are not wild animals. So not only do we get a false representation of nature on our TV screens, we also get a false representation of nature during our most common interactions with animals. This further distorts people's perception of how ugly the business of survivorship really is. We can recalibrate our distorted perception of reality by identifying the source of the distortions and filtering them out. To better understand the merits of different pecking order strategies, the distortions of reality we need to filter out are the animals we routinely slaughter. Sapiens have shown it's possible to change a wild animal pack's pecking order heuristics by genetically entrapping and enslaving them. If you entrap a herd of aurochs and then feed and breed the muscular and docile ones, you get a herd of oxen. If you entrap a herd of aurochs and feed and breed the obese and docile ones, you get a herd of cows. If you entrap a litter of boar and then feed and breed the obese and docile ones, you get a litter of pigs. If you entrap a flock of jungle fowl and then feed and breed the obese and docile ones, you get a flock of chickens. These activities produce A-B testing experiments where oxen, cows, pigs, and chickens become the treatment and aurochs, boar, and jungle fowl become the control. To measure how removing the physically powerful and aggressive members of an animal pack affects their ability to survive against predators, simply take inventory of the difference between the bacon on your plate and the boars you aren't eating. From that data, it's possible to infer a causal relationship between docility and survival. Across a wide range of randomized variables, the docile animals are the ones we keep in cage to eat or to do our manual labor. Time and time again, for multiple different species in multiple different experiments with high variability, we have proven that 1. A pack's capacity for survival and prosperity depends upon their pecking order strategy, and 2. The best way to degrade a pack's safety, security, freedom, and independence is to prevent or undermine their capacity and inclination to impose physical costs on their oppressors by preventing them from feeding and breeding their most physically powerful and aggressive members. Section 3.10.6 To make it to the top of the dominance hierarchy, domesticate your peers. Natural selection caused many pack animals to become sexually dimorphic, where one gender is genetically optimized to be physically stronger and physically more aggressive than the other. For some species, the female is genetically optimized to be more physically powerful and aggressive. For others, it's the male. Either way, with few exceptions, natural instincts make animals sexually attracted to physically powerful, intelligent, and assertive members of the pack. These instincts ensure the species genetically self-optimizes itself for survival by passing on the genes of the most physically powerful, intelligent, and assertive members.
In the mammalian class, males often have higher testosterone levels, contributing to sexual dimorphism and making them physically stronger and more aggressive members of the pack. This sexual dimorphism is a design feature that sapiens learned how to exploit. To change the feed and breed the powerful first pecking order heuristic employed by mammalian pack animals, sapiens learned how to neuter the strongest and most physically aggressive males to remove their genes from the gene pool. This tactic is given polite-sounding names like selective breeding, but what it represents from a socio-technical and honest perspective is a way to force an entire species to become less physically powerful and aggressive through genetic modifications, thus less capable of and inclined to impose severe physical costs on their human oppressors. Domestication is therefore a form of predation, a power projection tactic that dramatically reshaped our world and put sapiens at the top of a global interspecies dominance hierarchy. Wild animals which have had their pecking order strategy exploited via domestication are called livestock. Wild birds which have had their pecking order strategy exploited via domestication are called poultry. Today, the biomass of domesticated livestock is comprised mostly of cattle and pigs and is about 14 times higher than the biomass of the rest of the world's non-domestic wild mammals combined. The biomass of domesticated poultry is about three times higher than the biomass of the rest of the world's wild birds combined. It's harder to domesticate birds because they can fly away, hence why most poultry are flightless or nearly flightless birds. A domesticated animal is a wild animal that has had its cost of attack unnaturally shrunken, as illustrated in the bowtie notation in figure 25. Bowtie representation of domestication. This type of exploitation is possible because many pack animals employ a specialized workforce dedicated to the task of being physically powerful and aggressive. By simply identifying that workforce and not allowing them to multiply, it's possible to dramatically reduce an animal pack's overall cost of attack over time, thus raising their BCRA, shrinking their prosperity margin, and making them easier to devour. The primary value-delivered function of domestication is to make it easier for humans to exploit and devour enslaved animals. The process is centered around reducing an animal's ability and inclination to project power and impose severe physical costs. In other words, raise the cost of attack and lower BCRA. By simply not allowing these animals to instinctively feed, breed, and multiply their strongest and most aggressive power projectors, it becomes much easier to oppress them. With their physical aggression intentionally bred out of them, oxen will allow themselves to become pack animals, routinely whipped and forced into drawing heavy loads for their masters, namely plows.
These plows are used to dredge up nutrients from the soil to aid in a process called irrigation. Irrigation helps produce more food for other animals which have also been systematically entrapped or forcefully enslaved by sapiens, creating a positively reinforcing feedback loop of plant and animal exploitation called agriculture. An overwhelming majority of all domesticated animals are herbivores for this reason. It's easier to feed herbivores using the fruit of their own slave labor. The ox is whipped to irrigate land to grow grains to feed more oxen and their other domesticated friends. The genetic entrapment and enslavement of animals via domestication is the practice upon which civilized human society was built in the Neolithic age. This is one of the many reasons why modern sapiens should think twice before condemning the physically aggressive behavior of a lion or any other wild animal species that have successfully avoided being domesticated by humans. We have a large enough dataset to causally infer that it's precisely because these animals are physically aggressive that they have not yet been domesticated. Section 3.10.7 The dominant species on any given planet is the species with pets. A dog is a wolf which has had its pecking order exploited over the course of 40,000 years to remove its capacity and inclination to impose severe physical costs on humans. Take a pack of wolves, neuter the mean and aggressive ones, breed the docile, subservient, and physically deformed ones, and the end state of that process is a shorter, stubbier, and more codependent creature which exists to serve its master. The reason why dogs are man's best friend is because they were genetically modified to worship humans by exploiting their pecking order. Meaner and less obedient dogs, in other words, more wolf-like dogs, aren't fed and bred. Nicer and more obedient dogs, which literally lick their master's feet, are called good dogs. Domestication is perhaps the most vivid display of interspecies domination possible. If we were to discover a planet with alien life, we would easily be able to identify the dominant species of that planet by finding the one which entrapped and turned 40 other species into their pets, slaves, and food supply. Domestication represents the ability to remove another species' physical power altogether rather than fight them. The ability to change a survivor into the wild into food to eat, or a tool to use, or a pet to cuddle. This is an honest and undistorted picture of human predation, that ugly part of survivorship that humans don't like to be reminded about. What's the point of this uncomfortable conversation? To prove a point. We have conclusive, causally inferable empirical evidence to indicate with a high degree of confidence that substantial impairments to safety, security, and survival are the direct result of not being physically powerful and aggressive. Domestication has created a dataset of highly randomized A-B testing experiments across more than three dozen species of animals 
of multiple classes in multiple environments over tens of thousands of years. It's incontrovertibly true that changing an animal's pecking order strategy to prevent them from giving their resources to their most physically powerful and aggressive members has a direct causal impact on their security. When populations become less capable of or inclined to impose severe physical costs on their attackers or oppressors, they become less safe, less secure, and less free. Section 3.10.8 If domesticating wild animals is predatory behavior, then so is domesticating humans. The domestication of animals has proven to be a very effective power projection tactic. In other words, domestication is a highly effective form of predation. This is important for the reader to understand because if domestication represents a systemic security risk to the freedom and prosperity of 40 different animal species, then domestication has the potential to threaten sapiens too. Not only is there systemic danger of self-domestication, but domestication itself is a form of attack against human society. Remove society's capacity and inclination to impose severe physical costs on other humans, and that will have a direct and measurable effect on their ability to survive and prosper. Human societies, therefore, have a fiduciary responsibility not to allow themselves to become too self-domesticated. Societies who are interested in survival and prosperity should not allow themselves to become less capable of and inclined to be physically aggressive to potential attackers or oppressors. Honest descriptions of domestication are useful because they demonstrate how poorly designed resource control systems represent a strategic security hazard. Our capacity to prosper depends on the heuristics we adopt to settle our disputes, control our resources, and determine the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of our property. Animals are demonstrably susceptible to entrapment and enslavement if they don't adopt resource control strategies, in other words, pecking orders, which minimize their BCRA. It has been proven time and time again that if packs don't utilize the optimal pecking order strategy, they become vulnerable to exploitation and abuse. The domestication of animals represents multiple, repeatable, randomized experiments where pecking order was the isolated variable. Not rewarding physically powerful and aggressive members of the pack with higher levels of control authority over the pack's valuable resources didn't produce higher levels of prosperity for those species. It produced the meat we put on our sandwiches. There is no shortage of empirical data to indicate that once a population stops feeding and breeding their physical power projectors, they start plowing fields, worshipping their masters, and lining up for slaughter. This has significant implications for sapiens who condemn the use of physical power and physical aggression to establish pecking order over resources because of the energy it uses or the injury it causes. This is further explored in the next chapter.
Physical power and aggression clearly have substantial effects on a population's safety, security, survival, and prosperity. Domesticated animals prove a causal link between docility and enslavement. Therefore, we should be cautious of people who encourage docility and condemn physical power as the basis for settling disputes, establishing control authority over resources, or achieving consensus on the legitimate state of ownership or chain of custody of property. It's clearly a security hazard and can also be a deliberate attack vector. This is a critical concept for the reader to understand for discussions in the following two chapters about power projection tactics in both society and cyberspace. This concept is also critical for understanding the socio-technical implications of Bitcoin. Section 3.10.9 Check Your Power Projection Privilege Studying dogs is more anthropology than zoology. If you want to know how far we've moved from the place we were designed to inhabit, look at modern dogs. The tragic, wheezing ones with bows in their forelocks and squashed faces and bent legs. Not proper dogs. The ones with faces like wolves. Charles Foster As discussed in the previous section, how a population of animals chooses to divvy up its resources can significantly impact its ability to survive and prosper. If a pack doesn't put the strongest, fastest, leanest, meanest, and most intelligent members of the pack at the top of its pecking order like it has been instinctively programmed by natural selection to do, it will likely experience different complex emergent behavior related to safety, security, survival, and prosperity. To repeat, this is not military dogma speaking. This is backed by an overwhelmingly large data set created by thousands of years of randomized experiments on animal populations from which causal inference is possible. The reader probably ate a piece of that dataset today. If animal populations could survive by employing first-come-first-served or finders-keepers or other resource control protocols, then we would observe them in the wild forming neat and orderly lines to access their food and territory. If wild animal packs could survive using alternative heuristics like divide food evenly, then we would observe this behavior in the wild. If animal packs could survive by letting their youngest, oldest, sickest, and most injured members have priority over resources, we would likely observe this behavior in the wild. But we don't observe these behaviors in the wild. In fact, we routinely observe the exact opposite behavior. Parents eat their babies or throw them out of the nest for being weak and ineffectual. Lions kill their cubs. With very few exceptions, wild pack animals abandon their sick, elderly, and injured. The physically powerful and aggressive members of the pack are rewarded with mating rights and control authority over resources, and physical power is used as the basis for achieving consensus on the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of resources. 
The overwhelming majority of animals adopt physical, power-based resource control hierarchies where they settle property disputes using physical power. Somehow, different evolutionary paths all converged on practically the same physical power-based resource control and dominance hierarchies. In these systems, power projectors don't wait in line for food or breeding rights. They automatically get first dibs. Instead of being angry at their power projectors for these offenses, many pack animals, including sapiens, are sexually attracted to their power projectors. They instinctively want their most physically fit and powerful to have first dibs on food and mating rights to ensure their genes remain in the population's gene pool. Completely different species, separated by major landmasses, all independently converged on the same physical power-based resource control protocols, despite dozens of other perfectly viable options for settling disputes, establishing control authority over resources, and achieving consensus on the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of their property. These animals didn't compare notes, but they converged on practically the same might-is-right pecking order heuristic. Why did this happen? A knee-jerk reaction to this question is to be condescending towards pack animals and label their behavior as savage, as if humans aren't cut from the exact same cloth. As if the foundation of Neolithic sapient civilization wasn't based on our mastery of this exact same power projection tactic over animals. We hunted competing animal populations to extinction and then entrapped, enslaved, and devoured the survivors to form what we call civilized society. Civilization is often considered to be a pejorative term to those who study nature. Sapiens are also instinctively attracted to signs of physical strength and they constantly celebrate their capacity to project physical power against each other. Humans have no intellectually honest ground on which to stand and accuse animals of being savage, or act like might is right, pecking order heuristics are beneath them. Sapiens use the same physical power-based resource control protocols whether they like to admit it or not. This is a core concept of the next chapter. Another common reaction to the question of why pack animals overwhelmingly favor feed and breed the powerful first, aka might is right, pecking order heuristics is to discredit their intelligence and label this behavior as unsophisticated. An argument is often raised that pack animals simply don't have the mental capacity to employ other, more sophisticated resource control heuristics that are less destructive or harmful. This argument presumes that alternative heuristics that aren't as prone to injury, like first-come-first-served or feed-and-breed-the-weakest-first, are somehow more cognitively complex than feed-and-breed-the-strongest-first. This presumption has no rational grounds because it's arguably more difficult to establish and maintain pecking order hierarchies based on power projection capacity. Physical power-based resource control protocols like feed and breed the most physically powerful first 
or Might is Right, require members of the pack to spend a great deal of time and effort constantly asserting themselves and finding opportunities to both improve and display their capacity and inclination to project power. Watching a pack of wild animals establish pecking order is usually an exercise in watching them constantly battle each other. Pack animals, for example birds and mammals, constantly snap at each other to assert physical dominance to keep a running tally of who deserves to be fed and bred first and what their position is within the dominance hierarchy. This is an energy-intensive chore which appears to take up more time and energy than alternative pecking order heuristics like first come first served or feed the youngest first or feed the oldest first. It's also clearly more dangerous and prone to causing physical injury, creating a disincentive to adopt it. There are simply too many downsides to the might-is-right pecking order heuristic to claim that it's unsophisticated. There must be a reason why this pecking order strategy overcame the disincentive to use it and became the dominant strategy in nature. A third reaction to the question of why pack animals use feed and breed the powerful first to establish control authority over their resources is to argue that weaker members simply don't have the option to do anything but allow physically powerful members to continuously eat first, due to being physically overpowered. This simply isn't valid. Mutiny is clearly an option. Power projectors like Mufasa may be strong, but they also need sleep. There's plenty of opportunities over the course of living together for disenfranchised members of the pack to cut the throat of abusive pack members to stop them from habitually cutting in line and allowing other pack members to starve. So why don't pack members team up and kill their alpha power projectors in those moments when they're vulnerable? Why do pack members allow themselves and their offspring to starve to death in service of the strongest members of their pack? Weaker members of the pack certainly have the mental capacity to cooperate together and overthrow abusive members, else they wouldn't have the cognitive ability to cooperate and live together as a pack in the first place. The subject of pecking order and resource control is where it becomes important for sapiens to check themselves on their survivorship bias and their privileges as the world's apex predator. We need to remind ourselves that only the best strategies for safety, security, and survival can survive 4 billion years of entropic chaos. Modern sapiens judge and criticize the behavior of wild animals from behind a safety moat filled with the blood of competitors they drove to extinction. Humans burned and speared and slaughtered their way to the comfort of the armchairs from which they pontificate about right and wrong or fair and unfair ways to settle disputes, establish control authority over resources, and determine the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of property. There is currently not a surviving mammal on this planet more predatory and destructive than humans. 
Section 3.10.10 Pack Animals Need Their Power Projectors to Survive Now that we have explored these core concepts of power projection, let's return to the example of Mufasa. Mufasa killed the pride's cubs because resources are scarce, and because the world is a cruel and unforgiving place full of predators and entropy. The pride must remain physically powerful and aggressive if they are to survive in this CCCH environment. Their prosperity depends on being able to maximize their cost of attack as much as they can, lest they risk extinction or perhaps worse, domestication. The pride will not allow themselves to muddy their gene pool or waste their precious time, energy, and food resources raising the offspring of demonstrably weaker and ineffectual lions. So Mufasa follows his natural instincts, instincts developed over millions of years of natural selection, and kills the cubs. The mothers of the slain cubs will not retaliate against Mufasa because they instinctively understand how vitally important Mufasa's physical power and aggression are for their pack's mutual survival. Physical power and aggression are virtues for safety, security, and survival in the wild. The pack needs Mufasa's physical power and aggression to survive as much as they need oxygen. They need to keep Mufasa fed, and they need to breed with him to add his genetics to the gene pool. Why? Because of primordial economics and the survivor's dilemma. The pride needs to manage resources effectively while lowering the pride's BCRA as much as possible, and they can accomplish both by killing the offspring of demonstrably weaker parents. It sounds cruel, but what works is what survives. We have very compelling evidence to indicate this strategy is effective because most of us have no idea what a lion tastes like. In conclusion, the behavior we see in nature should be regarded with solemn respect, not condescension or sanctimony. Nature offers a free lesson in survival from something that has been around far longer than we have, and it's good to listen to the hard-won wisdom of our elders, no matter how uncomfortable it makes us feel. By virtue of its ubiquity, nature's chosen pecking order strategy of feed and breed the power projectors first, aka might is right, deserves our reverence because it has been regression tested over thousands of millennia. Physical power-based dominance hierarchies are demonstrably more secure against predation, exploitation, enslavement, and abuse, capable of passing a very unforgiving natural selection process. This means we should take physical power-based resource control protocols seriously and have some intellectual humility before we condemn them. There's a reason why they survive, and we should seek to understand that reason from a systemic and socio-technical perspective. Moreover, we should recognize that humans are clearly not above these sorts of physical power projection strategies. If anything, 
humans are the undisputed masters of them. Section 3.11 Physical Power-Based Resource Control Don't hate the player, hate the game. Ice-T Section 3.11.1 There may not be such a thing as fair in nature, but there is such a thing as fit. Systemic security is a trans-scientific phenomenon that forces us to confront frustratingly unquantifiable variables like ethics and design considerations. There is almost always a trade-off between what's good and what actually works, both from an ethical perspective and from a design perspective. One of the most frustratingly trans-scientific questions for any pack animal, to include sapiens, is how to settle property disputes. What is the right way to establish control over an animal pack's precious resources and to achieve consensus on the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of property. This is fundamentally a question that cannot be answered objectively. However, it is possible to observe nature and independently verify from empirical observation what pecking order heuristics are employed by nature's top survivors. In other words, it's possible to see what good resource control designs are by simply choosing to define good as demonstrably capable of survival in a CCCH environment filled with predators and entropy. Another way of saying the same thing is that regardless of whether people believe that might is right is right, people can't deny that it survives. The ubiquity of might is right in nature proves that proof of power is a highly effective survival strategy and a time-tested power projection tactic that has proven itself over hundreds of millions of years to be able to keep pack animals systemically secure against predation. Intelligent, physically powerful, and aggressive animals survive and prosper. Period. Humans are incontrovertible proof of this basic fact of life. Therefore, if we have ideological objections about might is right, we should also have the intellectual humility to recognize that we have a fiduciary responsibility to the survival of our own species to recognize that these ideological objections are just that, ideological. As the mantra goes, don't hate the player, hate the game. The fact that Mufasa kills the cubs, or that a mother goose kicks the runt out of her nest, isn't something to condemn or lament. If there is anything to condemn or lament, it's the fact that we live in a cold, hard, cruel, and unsympathetic world filled with predators and entropy, where it's necessary to kill cubs and abandon runts to survive and prosper. As much as any organism might prefer not to, they must all fight to survive. Welcome to life on Earth. The takeaway? There's no such thing as fair in nature. Fair is a subjective and unquantifiable ideological construct that apparently only humans, the most physically powerful and destructive apex predators on the planet to date, are capable of thinking about. There is, however, such a thing as fit in nature. 
Fit is something we can objectively quantify and independently validate through empirical observation, simply by observing what survives. So the primary question to ask is, what power projection tactics do pack animals employ to be fit for survival? This question leads us to physical power hierarchies. Section 3.11.2 Why are physical power-based dominance hierarchies so fit for survival? What makes physical power-based resource control strategies like feed and breed the powerful first more capable of survival? Primordial economics provides a simple explanation. Borrowing from three strategic options for survival outlined in sections 3.6 and 3.7, how a pack chooses to settle disputes, establish control authority over resources, and achieve consensus on the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of property can cause an emergent effect of either increasing the pack's benefit of attack more than its cost of attack, option 1, increasing the benefit of attack the same as the cost of attack, option 2, or increasing the cost of attack more than the benefit of attack, option 3. The survivor's dilemma indicates that option 3 is the best strategy. This could explain why feed and breed the power projectors first represents an optimal strategy for managing internal resources, because it ensures the most powerful and aggressive pack members with the most capacity and inclination to systemically secure the pack by imposing severe physical costs on attackers are well-fed and multiplied. This helps the pack maximize its cost of attack and minimize its BCRA to generate enough prosperity margin to grow resource abundance without substantially increasing the threat of being devoured or domesticated by neighboring organisms. Organizations which employ feed and breed the powerful first are more likely to have a lower BCRA than organizations which use alternative pecking order heuristics, as illustrated in Figure 26, bowtie representation of different pecking order heuristics. But when more packs adopt the same pecking order strategy, it drives the environment's hazardous BCRA level down and compels other packs to adopt the same strategy. This makes feed and breed the power projectors yet another power projection shelling point, which organizations are strategically inclined to adopt, hence its ubiquity in both the wild and in human society. If neighboring animal packs are feeding and breeding their power projectors, then your organization must feed and breed your pack's power projectors too, else risk becoming an attractive target of opportunity. Section 3.11.3 Modeling Physical Power-Based Resource Control Protocols It is possible to model the physical power-based resource control protocol using systemic theoretic processes. If we treat an animal pack as a system and treat security and survival as complex emergent behavior of that system, we can conclude that security and survival are complex behaviors which emerge from the structure of individual components within the pack, 
as well as from the interactions between and among those components. By modeling these individual components and their interactions, it is possible to compare them to other resource control models to determine if they might share similar emergent effects. This will be done in the following chapter with a different type of resource control structure developed by agrarian sapiens, known colloquially as governments. For this thesis, the controlled process we want to examine is the state of ownership and chain of custody of a PAC's valuable internal resources. With the controlled process formally defined in Figure 27, Physical Power-Based Resource Control Protocol Used in the Wild, Part 1 of 4, the next step in modeling a physical power-based resource control protocol is to model the controllers within the system. By default, every member of an animal pack doubles as a system controller with some amount of control authority over the controlled process. We can call these controllers members and treat them as a component within the system capable of executing certain control actions. In addition to members, PACs have specialized workers genetically optimized to project power. These workers have special control authorities which members don't have, and can therefore be represented as different controllers within the system. We can call these controllers power projectors. Another controller within an animal pack's physical power-based resource control protocol is one that has control authority over the entire pack, physics. More specifically, physical power, aka watts. Physics is a naturally occurring control authority to which all other system controllers are subordinate. No animal gets to unsubscribe from the control authority of physical power. This means both members and power projectors operating within an animal pack automatically subscribe to physical power's control authority as an involuntary control action, whether they like it or not. In return, physical power exercises control over the animal pack by giving power projectors the resources, physical power, needed to exercise control over the controlled process. Physical power itself can therefore be modeled as a controller which executes the control action of empowering power projectors. Together, physical power, power projectors, and members represent three controllers within an animal pack's resource control system model. This is shown in Figure 27. As discussed at the beginning of this chapter, Resources are only owned insofar as able-bodied organisms are willing and able to project power to gain and maintain access to those resources. We can incorporate this concept into our model as two control actions assigned to power projectors, which they can exercise over the controlled process. 1. Gaining access to resources, and 2. Defending access to resources. Both of these control actions are shown in Figure 27. Additionally, members don't get to eat unless power projectors are willing to use their power to gain and maintain access to the pack's resources. In other words, food. 
But even if power projectors are willing to use their power to gain and maintain access to the pack's resources, members still don't get to eat unless power projectors permit them to eat. In other words, alphas can and often do deny some members of the pack from having access to the pack's internal resources. Pack members therefore must tacitly request access to the pack's resources and power projectors must tacitly approve those requests. These two additional control actions are also shown in Figure 28, Physical Power-Based Resource Control Protocol Used in the Wild, Part 2 of 4. Even though power projectors have seemingly disproportionate control authority over resources, members are not without their own form of control authority to provide a counterbalance. Members exercise substantial control over the controlled processes by assigning value to the resources. This is a subtle but very important control action which often gets overlooked. That will become important to point out later in a discussion about Bitcoin. The need for power projectors to establish consensus on the state of ownership and chain of custody of resources hinges on the assumption that pack members actually value those resources in the first place. If members don't assign value to the resources over which power projectors compete for control authority, then the power projectors' control authority over those objects is practically useless. Members therefore have a unique ability to render their power projectors' control authority practically useless by simply revoking the value they assign to the resources controlled by power projectors. The reason why this control action is often overlooked is because it's rarely exercised by the majority of all species of pack animals. Many resources have existential importance that is virtually impossible for pack members not to value. For example, it's not likely that members of any species will stop valuing food, water, oxygen, and other physical resources which are essential for their survival. But the value of some resources is flexible and prone to change. For example, the value of lakefront territory can change rapidly if the sun dries up the lake. Pack members could care less about their power projectors' control authority over lakefront territory if they don't value it anymore. This control action is a major factor for human PACs, aka polities like governments, because sapiens often compete to exercise control authority over immaterial resources with abstract value, for example, money. A pack of sapiens could have the most dominant power projectors in the world, but their control authority over abstract resources like money can be rendered useless if members simply decided to stop valuing that abstract resource. With this subtle control action, we can close the loop and complete our physical power-based resource control model in Figure 29, Physical Power-Based Resource Control Protocol Used in the Wild, Complete Build. Section 3.12, The Beauty of Antlers. There wasn't enlightened, compassionate democracy on the tundra. Dogs really do eat dogs, and more importantly for the hunter-gatherer world, stags battle stags. 
Charles Foster. Section 3.12.1 Physical power projection is necessary, but it clearly has drawbacks. Most surviving wild pack animals use physical power to settle disputes, establish control authority over internal resources, and achieve consensus on the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of property. Pack animals spend a great deal of time establishing physical power-based dominance hierarchies to manage their resources, constantly seeking to display to their peers their physical strength and aggression, all to showcase their worthiness for the pack's resources because of their capacity and inclination to impose severe physical costs on attackers. For carnivores, this pecking order communication strategy often looks something like that shown in figure 30, a power projection strategy prone to causing injury. For animal packs which adopt physical power-based resource control protocols, the strongest and most aggressive power projectors are awarded with food and mating rights, perpetuating a virtuous cycle of systemic security that develops and sustains a well-resourced workforce of power projectors who keep the pack's BCRA as low as possible given limited resources. The result of this heuristic is safety, security, and survival in a CCCH environment filled with predators and entropy. An unfortunate side effect for using physical power as the basis for settling disputes, establishing control authority over physical resources, and achieving consensus on the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of property, is that physical power projection is prone to causing injury. When done kinetically, in other words, using forces to displace masses, displays of physical power can lead to fratricide. And when physical strength and aggression is disproportionately rewarded with food and mating rights, it's easy to see why this protocol can lead to life-threatening injuries. Nature mitigates this risk by making pack animals instinctively disinclined to fatally injure each other. For example, when wolves infight to establish their pecking order, it is common for one wolf to successfully pin down their opponent. The dominant wolf will press its teeth against the jugular of the opponent, but it will not bite. For existential reasons, the wolf is instinctively disinclined to kill a fellow member of the pack. It needs every member of the pack to hunt for prey, secure the pack against predators, and to survive and prosper for as long as possible. This explains why many animals do not battle to the death over food and mating rights. They battle to the point where they can discern that one is clearly more powerful and aggressive than the other, thus more fit for survival in a CCCH environment. The reason why the author has dedicated so much time explaining these concepts in such great detail is so the reader can understand that humans have similar natural instincts. It takes a considerable amount of training not to get sapiens to stop instinctively pulling their punches when fighting hand-to-hand with other sapiens. This is not because sapiens want to minimize injury to themselves. 
It's because sapiens have an unconscious instinct to minimize injury to their opponent. Soldiers must be trained in how to overcome their natural disinclination to cause lethal injury. Hundreds of years ago, when soldiers still used close-range rifles where they could see their opponents' faces, it was not uncommon for them to refuse to fire even under the threat of death. As one famous example, 87% of the rifles recovered from dead soldiers after Gettysburg, the third bloodiest battle in American history, were fully loaded. Several of those rifles had been double and triple stuffed with ball and powder, suggesting that soldiers weren't firing shots and were even faking their shots and reload sequences during battle. It's hard to argue that these soldiers didn't realize their rifles weren't firing because of the substantial amount of sound, recoil, and visible smoke that every rifle produced during this time. Gettysburg was one of many battles which demonstrated how powerful human instincts are to avoid injuring fellow sapiens. Even when facing a clear and imminent threat to their own life, soldiers won't fire their rifles because their instinct to preserve a fellow human's life is often psychologically stronger than the instinct to preserve their own life. This is part of the reasons why militaries require so much training. Militaries must train their members to overcome this instinct when needed, because deliberately killing one's own kind is something instinctively unnatural for some species, to include sapiens. Nevertheless, wolves still end up killing other wolves. Humans end up killing other humans, and so on. The simple fact of the matter is that physical, power-based resource control protocols are destined to cause lethal injury. It's an unfortunate side effect of a demonstrably necessary protocol for survival and prosperity. We know this because the pack animals which survive in the wild are the ones who use this protocol. Is physical injury wasteful? It certainly seems to be. But it also seems to be the case that the risk of physical injury is a price that natural selection demands for survival, a price that Earth's top survivors are willing to pay. Based on extensive randomized experimentation, we know what happens to wolves and countless other animal populations when their physical power-based resource control hierarchies are unnaturally disrupted. They become docile and domesticated. They start to depend on their masters for safety and security, and they get systemically exploited at extraordinary scales. The emergent effect of interfering with an animal pack's natural instinct to reward their physically powerful and aggressive members is incontrovertible. We see proof of it every day. We eat the proof for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We play fetch with the proof. We post pictures of the proof on our social media pages. Section 3.12.2 There are less harmful ways to establish intraspecies dominance hierarchies using physical power. Nevertheless, using physical power as the basis for settling disputes, establishing control authority over internal resources, 
and achieving consensus on the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of property doesn't necessarily have to cause so much physical injury. Nature shows us that there are different ways to project physical power to establish intraspecies dominance hierarchies. Different animals have adopted different strategies to perform the same function, and we can take note of them. For example, mammalian carnivores and herbivores employ much different power projection strategies for establishing their dominance hierarchies. Mammalian carnivores hunt for their food, so they are already equipped with the power projection technology needed to settle their internal property disputes and establish internal control authority over resources. They often use the same teeth and claws to take down prey as they do to establish pecking order within their intraspecies dominance hierarchies. Mammalian herbivores, on the other hand, are often equipped with much different-looking power projection technology. Instead of having sharp teeth and claws to bite and cut each other, many herbivores sprout heavy and cumbersome protrusions out of their foreheads, then clash them together to settle disputes and establish pecking order. We call this power projection technology antlers. From a primordial economic perspective, antlers are a fascinating evolution. They can impose as much, if not more, severe physical costs on attackers as a wolf's teeth or claws can. A well-grown pair of antlers are no doubt effective at lowering the BCRA of a stag and a herd of deer. But antlers aren't simple stabbing devices like rhino or triceratops horns. They have bizarre geometries like those shown in figure 31. Awkward-looking and underappreciated power projection technology. The geometry of antlers makes them prone to entanglement with other antlers, a problem that more simplified and easy-to-grow puncturing devices like horns, teeth, and claws don't have. What could possibly be the benefit of such a bizarre design? Why do stags have such awkwardly shaped devices growing out of their foreheads when they could instead grow a simple puncturing device like a rhino horn and use that to impose severe physical costs on attackers instead? Would that not be just as effective? To answer these questions, simply ask yourself the following question. If you were a stag and you had to go head-to-head with your brother's stag to settle an intraspecies dispute, would you rather have antlers or a rhino horn? Unless you desire to kill your brother, you should prefer to be equipped with antlers rather than a rhino horn, because your antlers would probably entangle with your brother's antlers without stabbing him, whereas a rhino horn probably wouldn't. Therein lies the subtle eloquence of antler design. When two pairs of antlers go head-to-head, Their entanglement functions as a cushion and creates a safe standoff distance large enough to prevent either side from getting severely injured. Thus, the tendency of antlers to entangle is an emergent property of their awkward geometry and a special design feature, not a flaw. The primary value-delivered function of antlers is to empower stags to defend their packs and establish their intraspecies dominance hierarchies using physical power, 
but to do it in a way that protects the species against fratricide. Entanglement protects members of the same species from impaling each other, yet still enables them to impale other species, notably the predators who don't have antlers, as needed. Consequently, antlers impose far more injury on predators than they do on peers. If you're a member of a herd of deer or similar species, you can butt heads all day to settle disputes, establish control authority over resources, and determine the legitimate state of ownership and chain of custody of property with far lower probability of causing mortal injury to each other. But if you're not the same species equipped with the same power projection technology, like if you're a predator who intends to bring harm to them, then you can expect a much higher probability of injury. The design isn't perfect. Puncture wounds still occasionally happen, and it's not uncommon to find two dead stags stuck together because their antlers entangled a little too well. But it's still less prone to mortal injury than rhino-style horns, or predators who cut each other with their claws and fangs. Natural selection is willing to accept the loss of having stags occasionally get mortally interlocked or impaled by accident. Stags which pass on their genes are the strongest stags with the most perfectly awkward antler geometry needed to minimize fratricide while maximizing strength and physical aggression. What survives is what works, and that process led to the fantastically awkward and beautiful antler geometries we see today. Awkward antler geometry entanglement is a safety feature, not a bug. Antlers allow stags to secure their pack against outside threats, wolves, while also preserving their ability to use physical power as the basis for establishing an intraspecies dominance hierarchy, but to do it as safely as possible. This means antlers represent life's discovery of a safer, less lethal strategy for physical power-based resource control. It's a special type of evolved power projection tactic that retains the strategic benefits of physical strength and aggression, but minimizes the harmful side effects. Survival demands that animal packs must feed and breed their strongest and most aggressive power projectors to increase the pack's overall cost of attack and lower BCRA, but that doesn't mean they have to severely injure each other. Stags don't need to hunt their food, so they have a designed trade space which carnivores don't have. With that trade space, stags show us ways to play the power projection game in a way that minimizes the pack's capacity for injuring each other. Sadly, very few people appreciate the eloquent design of antlers because they don't understand the dynamics of physical power projection. To those who don't factor in primordial economics and the dynamics of security and survival, the unnaturally large and awkward protrusions growing out of a stag's head may look like bad design, particularly a waste of energy and resources. Clashing antlers together to establish a physical, power-based resource control hierarchy seems unnecessary. The unnecessarily large structure of antlers looks like a waste of keratin. 
Why burn so many calories carrying around the weight of that much extra keratin and waste more energy clanging them together? What could possibly be the point of such an energy-inefficient-looking design? It would be tragic to condemn antlers for their inefficiency and waste because the intent of the design is quite noble, the prevention of fratricide and the preservation of life. There's nothing inefficient about the preservation of life. In fact, few things are more wasteful, not to mention existentially risky, than allowing the pack's power projectors to routinely commit fratricide. Antlers may look weird and inefficient on the surface, particularly to those who don't understand power projection, but they enable the pack to lower BCRA and establish pecking order the way natural selection demands, using a strategy which maximizes safety by minimizing the potential for causing mortal injury to a member of the same species. The pack can still feed and breed its strongest and most aggressive power projectors as is necessary for safety, security, and survival. It can still settle disputes in a fair and meritorious way using physical power competition. It can still establish control authority over precious resources using physical power. But it can strive to do all these things without endangering their own species. A reason why people may not appreciate antler design is because they don't understand the governing dynamics of primordial economics. After spending too much time at the top of the food chain, it's easy to forget that we live in a world filled with predators and entropy. For those who value security, it is an existential imperative to secure oneself by imposing severe, physically prohibitive costs on attackers. That means it's also an existential imperative to ensure the pack's most powerful members get the most resources. But how does the pack identify their most physically powerful members without engaging in physical power competitions? Therein lies the challenge. Animal packs, to include humans, need physical power competitions to identify the members of the pack who are most deserving of the pack's resources, thus the most qualified to be at the top of the physical power-based dominance hierarchy. But unfortunately, those physical power competitions often lead to fratricide. Antlers fix this. Without factoring in primordial economics, it's easy to look at antlers and see a flawed, inefficient design, but the reality is quite the opposite. Antlers represent an eloquent display of nature's determination to preserve life by minimizing fratricide, combined with its stoic acknowledgement that physical power-based dominance hierarchies are existentially necessary in a world filled with predators and entropy where the physically powerful survive and prosper. Antlers represent a compromise between two opposing design variables, a way to alleviate the tension between security and safety. Pack animals must maximize their ability to impose physically prohibitive costs on neighbors to improve their security, but they can endeavor to make their physical power competitions as non-lethal as possible. In summary, 
pack animals must be able to identify their strongest and most physically aggressive members and award them with control authority over the resources they need to lower the pack's BCRA, but they don't have to inflict injury and commit fratricide in the process. Stags prove it's possible for pack animals to survive and prosper by projecting power the way natural selection demands, all while minimizing physical injury. In other words, it's possible to maximize security and safety simultaneously. All it takes is the right kind of bizarre technology and the right kind of people to recognize the value of the design. This concludes the first chapter of Power Projection Theory. In the remaining two chapters, the author will outline why Bitcoin may represent the human equivalent of antlers.